Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. My name's Rod Klinger, and for those of you that don't know me, um, my wife and I have been coming here for about 22 years now. When we moved to Massachusetts in 2000, we were looking for churches and um, stumbled on the vineyard and it places so welcoming and so loving that we've just never gone anywhere else and we're happy with that. We love you guys as well. It's a delight to be talking with you this morning. Uh, you'll notice I'm not quite as free as Stephen and Sarah. I'm going to probably hold this paper a lot and don't worry about that. It's my crutch, right? Stephen preached last week from Galatians 5 about the kind of fruit that we bear. He said that growing in Jesus requires intentionality. If you compare our relationship with Jesus to a garden, you might say that it requires pruning and watering and weeding. It requires deliberate effort. I want to build a little bit on that theme today. As I thought about what I wanted to say to you, I figured that I would start out with our garden. This is one of the gardens in our backyard. Um, It is not particularly impressive, but it does give Dasha and me great pleasure. Or I should say, really, it gives Dasha great pleasure. (laughs) I'm the guy with the pitchfork and with the shovel, and she says, dig here, and I dig there. My real joy is actually the compost pile that feeds the garden. It's weird, you know, it's a whole bunch of rotting things, but I manage it, I turn it, I kind of water it, and I make sure that it is ready to nourish the garden. And then Dasha does the real work. I've been hanging out in a passage in the book of Second Peter lately, actually for the last couple of months, because I'm a little bit slow, And uh, the garden analogy actually really fits it. I love to geek out about certain passages, and 2 Peter is a fascinating book. Today I want to talk about chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It addresses some of the same things that uh, Stephen was talking about last week, but from a different angle. As I was preparing for this morning, I read a book from C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. It's a dense book, kind of hard to get through, but it's uh, very short, thankfully. He also uses a garden analogy, and I thought a paraphrase of that might be a great place for us to start this morning. A garden is a good thing. You're not insulting it to say that it will not fence and weed itself, nor prune its own fruit trees, nor roll and cut its own lawns. It will remain a garden, as distinct from a wilderness, only if someone does these things to it. So to use the garden analogy, if we liken our walk with Jesus to planting and maintaining a garden, we have to know what's a good plant and what's a weed. Um, When I'm helping Dasha with the garden, I'm notorious for confusing the two. We have to know when the plants are healthy and when they need water and when they need help and we have to be ready to do the things that need to be done because if we know that the weeds are taking over but we don't address the weeds then we lose the plants that we want. So I'm going to make an assumption here and let let me just check in with you. 
all of us want to be pleasing to God, right? When we die, most of us want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay. I didn't hear a resounding yes. Okay, good, good. I figure that's actually, that's kind of a stretch for me, right? When I face God, I'm going to hear, eh, you could have done worse, you know. But I'll take what I can get. Ultimately, we want God to be delighted by our gardens. We want him to come and hang out in them. And um, Peter gives us some really good guides to help us become the people, the gardens, that God wants us to be. So let me set the stage for the passage that we're going to be reading today. Um, Peter writes, it's a letter that Peter wrote to actually Gentile converts that he'd written to before. He writes the letter toward the end of his life, probably as a prisoner in Rome, with the full knowledge that he would die soon at the hands of the Roman Empire. Jesus had told him this would happen. He probably was martyred not too long after writing this letter, and tradition holds that he was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to die the same way that Jesus had. He writes to remind his letters of the truth that they had been taught and to warn them about false teachers who had infiltrated their churches. He was pretty upset about the false teachers. He calls them waterless springs for whom the utter depths of darkness have been reserved, and he reminds them that they will be judged. But Peter starts his letter with thanksgiving for God's outrageous goodness, and he describes a way for us to stay on track, growing and maturing in Jesus, and so that's what I want to focus on this morning. Um, So as we get into this passage, at Vineyard Church Hopkinton, we normally use the New Living Translation of the Bible, and there are actually copies in the back for free if you want one. Um, But I'm going to read from the New English Translation today because I think it captures the spirit of the passage really well. If you're using the NLT, you can still follow along. It's just going to sound a little bit different. On the slides that are coming up here, you are going to see some color-coded words, which are the ones that I'm going to dive into today. If the colors are the same on the words, then the original word in the Greek is the same. Yeah, I think it's going to be a little hard for you to read that, isn't it? it? It is, unfortunately, a fairly long passage, but Peter writes, I can pray this which is his thanksgiving for the Gentiles he's addressing, receiving the word of God, because his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these things, he has bestowed on us his precious and most magnificent promises so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature after escaping the worldly corruption that's produced by evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection unselfish love. For if these things are really yours and are continually increasing, they will keep you from becoming ineffective and unproductive in your pursuit of knowing our Lord Jesus more intimately. 
But concerning the one who lacks such things, he's blind. That is to say, he's nearsighted since he's forgotten about the cleansing of his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. For by doing this, you will never stumble into sin. For thus, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided. So, self-disclosure, I generally don't like lists. They stress me out. It's like, you know, the honeydew thing. Ah, too much. And the Bible has a lot of lists. Um, there's the fruit of the Spirit, which we talked about last week, and there's uh, lists describing what real love is like. There's lists of what the enemies of God do. There's all kinds of lists. And there's a list in this passage, too. Not sure, did you notice it? Yeah. At first glance, it's a list of things we should pile up on our faith to make us acceptable to God, right? Now, let me just check in with you. Does anybody else get stressed out by these kinds of lists? Oh, I hear some nervous chuckles. Okay, good. That's good. If you read it straight out, it looks like you should do something like this. Right? You have faith, and on faith you pile excellence, and on excellence you pile knowledge, then self-control, then perseverance, then godliness, then brotherly affection, and love. You do it layer by layer, and once you've got that faith thing down, well, yeah, you can go on to the excellence from there, right? Or maybe you look at it like this. Love, oh, Tracy, you need that slide. There you go. Love is the luscious chocolate scoop on top but you're never really going to get there unless you either cheat and just put the chocolate directly on the cone or if you put all of those layers in between, right? But Peter's list is actually a little bit different. Again, you might think of it as a garden or maybe as a river with all the tributaries coming into it. Peter starts out by saying that he can give thanks because God in his divine power has already given us everything that we need for life and godliness because we know Jesus who called us by his own glory and excellence. It's not something that we cooked up. It's not something we earned. We don't have to find God and be good enough for him. He called us because he wanted to that part's done. We don't need to stress out about it. We all got the invite, and God throws a really terrific party. We just have to show up. Now, God gave us the promise of his presence in our lives and of eternal life with him because he wanted to. As we focus on him, we get to really experience God. One of his greatest promises is that because of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. And as a result, we get to partake of his divine nature. So Peter writes, because of all of this, we should make every effort to add to our faith all of these things. There's a few things worth digging into here. First, that phrase, add to stresses me out. It's the honey-do list, right? It feels like I have to take a bunch of things and stuff them one into another, but it's not actually written that way in Greek. Uh, in the Greek, it actually means, in your faith, lavishly supply. 
the word that's translated ad or supplement is actually a term from ancient Greek theater productions where it was an honor for a benefactor, some citizen, to lavishly supply everything that the chorus needed for this production so that, that they could come marching in, singing, dancing, and all of this stuff. The word came to mean a generous and costly cooperation. And that's kind of what we're doing here, right? We are lavishly, generously cooperating with God to nurture these things in our life. And we should be very deliberate in going after them. Now next, faith is kind of assumed. If you go back to the garden analogy, faith could be the rich and the fertile soil into which all of the virtues can grow. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's written in the book of Hebrews because God wants to have relationship with you and it's pretty hard to have relationship if you don't believe he's there or if you believe he's out to get you. For instance, my marriage would be pretty rocky if I didn't believe that Dasha was there. But faith isn't actually something you have to drum up and it's not something you have to shut off your brain to get. Faith is super powerful. Jesus says if you have the tiniest seed of faith, teeny tiny thing, you can do amazing things. Now, for some of you, that tiny seed might just be saying, oh Lord, increase my faith. Do you know it actually takes faith to pray that prayer? That's something his disciples did, the ones that were with him day in and day out. Oh, Lord, increase our faith. And it's a prayer he actually loves to answer. So don't be afraid to pray that one. Just make room for him and invite him into that room. Don't try to dictate how he shows up. You know, Lord, if this isn't done the way I want it to be, it's not you and you don't exist. Don't try to do that. But don't be surprised when he does show up. In verse 1, uh, Peter addresses the letter to those who have received a faith as precious as ours. They didn't earn it. It was a gift from God. So according to Peter, in our faith, which could be as small as a little mustard seed, we should lavishly cooperate with God to build a few things into our lives. We need to realize that this is something that God really wants for his people and that he is faithful to do this as we cooperate with them. So, in your faith, wow, next time I'm going to use a much larger font. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. In your faith, lavishly supply goodness or moral excellence. Now, excellence is another trigger word for me because it sounds like I have to really just do and do and be really good and that I'm going to be really judged on my performance. Uh, it's not really that way. Excellence is the same word that Peter just used in verse 3 to describe God who called us by his own glory and excellence. The, the Greek word gets translated excellence or virtue or goodness in different Bible translations. The Apostle Paul uses it when he writes that we should think about things that are lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. One of the way that the Greeks might have used it is to say, for instance, that excellence, a knife's excellence, for instance, is to cut. It's what it was designed to do. That's where it's at home. 
And taking that to somewhere that a Greek scholar probably wouldn't like, we can say that maybe this means that we should make every effort to be who God made us to be. Because God is full of goodness, and he designed us so that our excellence is living in relationship with him. Now, next, in your goodness, generously supply knowledge. Again, Peter is picking up on a term he just used of God, who has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our rich knowledge of Jesus. The word that gets used is kind of an experiential personal knowledge. Uh, it's funny how, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, and we used to say that the East Coast, all the guys on the East Coast were this way. But we, kind of everybody is this way. We often get the order backwards when we think of God. We think if we can just get enough knowledge, and if we can just know for sure, then maybe we can start to trust Jesus, which maybe leads to goodness. Or, especially for those who grew up in the church, if we can just be good enough then maybe Jesus will make himself really known to us. Now, note, the Bible's not anti-knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing, and especially when it's sourced in Jesus. But uh, Peter is kind of, he's laying a landmine for the false teachers here, as well as saying that knowledge is best when it is sourced in Jesus. The false teachers taught that through special spiritual knowledge, people could become free from the material world. And then it no longer mattered what the body did. You might as well satisfy all of its urges because you were a new spiritual person. Now, that still actually gets taught in different variants in churches today. And it is a false teaching, right? What Peter is saying is that relationship with Jesus is first and foremost. It is integrated and the best kind of knowledge comes from that relationship, not outside of it. And then he writes, in your knowledge, generously supply self-control. And you notice I'm highlighting different plants in the garden here. Each of these things is a different plant in that same garden. So building on the knowledge theme, knowledge of Jesus leads to self-control which means that you are the master of your body and your body's desires and not the other way around. If you remember Stephen's sermon from last week, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives in us as we devote ourselves to Jesus. It's exactly the opposite of what the false teachers were saying. They said by special knowledge that you know they had the inside scoop on, you could completely abandon yourself, and that was great because you were setting aside the material and pursuing the spiritual. Okay, in your self-control, generously supply perseverance. Perseverance is the frame of mind and character that keeps you doing the right thing, even when doing that might produce difficulty or suffering or sorrows. If self-control is the grace of holding back, perseverance is the grace of holding on. In your perseverance, generously supply godliness. Again, Peter picks up on what he wrote before. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Jesus. Is godliness kind of a trigger word for you? It kind of is for me, actually, emotionally, right? It doesn't sound natural. Now, I 
don't feel particularly like God. I'm not sure if I actually want to be like God. You know, I want to have some of the characteristics that Jesus describes of his followers, which are characteristics that God has and sourced, but to be like God, it, it kind of freaks me out. So I'm good being a fallible human. Um, and when I hear godliness, I get a little bit triggered because it makes me think of some kind of weird church person, which I don't feel comfortable with. Now, the word for godliness is arete in the Greek, and it's much different from the word for religion, which is threskeia in Greek. Here, what Peter is talking about is inward, true, vital spiritual relationship with God. We need to persevere. We need to press into that relationship. And it's interesting, as he places it in his list here, that it seems that godliness requires perseverance. It's one of those things that we seek after and we continue to seek after. And we see little progress here and there. Okay, finally. In your godliness, generously supply brotherly affection. And in your brotherly affection, generously supply unselfish love. I want to go down a little rabbit trail here. I is that cool? I didn't hear it good. Yeah? Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's already been, I think, like 18 minutes or so. And I know some of you probably feel like your heads are going to explode, and others are probably already busy checking Instagram. But I promise, really, stick with me. We're going to bring this together soon. Um, brotherly affection and unselfish love can both get translated love. Some commentators say that the two words are really equivalent and interchangeable. They aren't. In some ways, they do overlap, and they're both good, and they're both necessary, and Jesus wants us to exhibit both of these things, but Peter takes great pains to separate them, and there are some nuances that we do completely lose in English when we translate it, because in English, we use love universally, right? For instance, I love my wife. She is absolutely amazing, and I am wild about her. I love my kids. I'm impressed with them. They're absolutely amazing as well, but in a very different way. Um, I love peanut butter toast. It's how I keep my dad bod looking like a dad bod. <laughs> I love the crisp autumn air when you go outside and you can smell the leaves and there's just this tiny little bite in the air. And I just say, I love these things. And you kind of understand where I'm coming from, right? If I was in Greek, I might use different words to describe these different aspects of love. And there are a couple that get used in the Bible. The first one is uh, Peter uses in this passage is Philadelphia, like the city in Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love, right? Um, it's closely related to the Greek verb phileo. It's friendship. It's affection. It's a we're all in this together kind of love. It's a good thing. The word that gets translated for unselfish love is agape in Greek. And I'm sure most of you have heard somebody talk about agape. 
it's a word that was emphasized a lot in Jesus' teachings and in the early church. It's how God is described. God is agape. It's the self-sacrificing love that wants the other's highest good, even when it comes at a high cost to yourself. It means to prefer the other, even over yourself. When God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he agaped the world. We should love God that way. And Jesus tells us to love each other that way. Back on June 6th, Sarah taught from John chapter 21. Do you remember that? No. I generally forget sermons as well. I'm going to forget this one as soon as I'm done with it. Um, That passage is a really amazing passage. So you remember, you know, Jesus was arrested and he was tried and he had told Peter, you know, before the cock crows, you are going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no. And then before the cock crowed, Peter had denied he even knew Jesus three times. Now, Jesus is resurrected, but at some point, Peter and the other disciples decide to go fishing. It makes sense, kind of, because Peter was a professional fisherman. Maybe this was his comfort place. Maybe he just needed to feel comfortable in his own skin, and he knew that this was something he could do. Maybe he was even thinking, you know, I'm just going to go back to that. I know how to do that. They'd spent all night fishing, and they hadn't caught anything. Early in the morning, the resurrected Jesus shows up on the shoreline calls out to them. They say, nah, it was bust. He says, throw your net on the other side of the boat. So they do, and they get this miraculous catch of fish that's just absolutely incredible. So Peter, realizing this is Jesus, jumps into the water, gets to the shore. Jesus cooks up some fish for breakfast. Then he has to sit down with Peter. He asks Peter three times, do you love me? The first two times, Peter says, yeah, Lord, I love you. And the third time, Peter gets upset because Jesus had asked him a third time. You guys all remember this one, right? So when we read the passage, we generally think, yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me three times? It's all good, hunky-dory. We all, we're cool, right? It's really a lot deeper than that. Let me dig into it for you. So Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you agape me more than these? Maybe he's saying, Peter, do you prefer me over the things that you know, over the fish that you tried to catch last night, over everything that makes you secure? Or maybe since Peter had been bragging about how devoted he was, how he would never forsake Jesus, how he would even die for Jesus, Maybe Jesus was saying, do you really think you love me more than all these other guys do? Now, after what Peter had just done, he couldn't really say, yeah, sure. So he kind of puts his best face on things. He never liked to paint things in a bad way. And he says, sure, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Hmm. So Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds, Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. The third time, Jesus asks, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter comes undone. 
is Jesus questioning even his affection? Or maybe is Jesus coming down to his level and saying, yeah, you're right, Peter. You didn't agape me. In that instance, any remaining shred of Peter's pride evaporates. He's like, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know I phileo you. And at the same time, Peter's confessing, you know when I said I'd lay down my life for you? That's kind of blowing smoke. Then after this, you know, when Peter finally gets, is broken, Jesus tells him, feed my sheep, and says that indeed he would end up laying down his life for his Lord. The confrontation was the healing that Peter needed. And Peter lived and died a life of agape after that. So, okay, so I'm in the middle of telling you about Second Peter and this list of virtues. Why do I spend so much time on this? Well, Peter knows really, really well the difference between affection and sacrificial love. In his list of virtues, the almost best thing is to treat each other as brothers and sisters with affection, realizing that we are part of the same family. But he learned the hard way that the love Jesus calls us to is greater than that. The pinnacle is preferring each other even above ourselves and deciding to love and to give even if we give even if we get nothing back in return. Now, if, I don't know, let's just spend a minute here in prayer. Lord Jesus, we want your agape. Holy Spirit, we want to live as the people of love and to show that to the broken world around us and to each other. Lord, would you come and do that in our midst, here in this place, even today. So, if you are sitting there and you're asking yourself, okay, so how do I, how do I get into this agape thing? Let me make a quick public service announcement. Um, one of the things we do as a church is called the Mobile Food Pantry. We're delivering food every other week to a community of underserved and disadvantaged families, mostly in Milford and a few in Ashland. It can be a challenging task. You know, many of them are poor. Many of them don't speak English. We don't normally get back thank yous from the community, and sometimes we don't get acknowledgement that they even received the food. Um, sometimes they move without telling us. And the crew that's packing the food doesn't actually have any contact with them at all. But we do hear from the Milford schools that the kids in those families show a noticeable difference. It's a chance to serve, to show God's love, even if the recipients don't realize what we're doing. It's a little tiny, teeny tiny mustard seed of agape. Now, if you're interested in that, talk to Dasha Klinger. Dasha, why don't you stand up real quick so you all know. This is the person to talk to. We do need volunteers to pack and to deliver. All right, then. Let's wrap up. Um, 
Yeah, this is worship team, why don't you come on back up? Uh, Peter showed us a bunch of things that in our faith we should generously supply. It's tempting to think that we build each one as a separate layer and go on to the next and the next and the next and then we don't have to revisit these things. But it may be more helpful to think of them together growing as a garden planted in fertile soil from faith. We should nurture and grow them all simultaneously. They might bloom in different seasons, but that's what makes the whole thing beautiful. And, of course... Every garden needs rich, well-maintained, well-managed compost. Just remember that. It's an important thing. Oh, it's supposed to be funny, guys. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Aww. But that wasn't totally the conclusion, so... Peter writes, For if these things are really yours and are continually increasing, they will keep you from becoming ineffective and unproductive in your pursuit of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ more intimately. So as we pursue these things, as we nurture this garden, God is you know, delighted by this, and it actually kind of keeps out by default some of the false teachings and the bad ways that we can go. Of course, you know, we still need to weed it, we still need to water it, we still need to look after it. But I hope that that's comforting for you. Yeah, as we focus on these things, we don't have to worry about stumbling into sin, stumbling off the road, etc. And Peter writes that as such, an entrance into the kingdom of heaven will be richly provided to you. God is just delighted to do this kind of stuff. So as all of that is set, why don't we set our minds and our hearts on pursuing these things together as a church? Mm -hmm.